people. Friends, and welcome to No Normal People. I'm your host, Stephen Henning. Thanks for joining us this week for our episode with Tim Legacy. For anyone interested in an update on the uh, the broken in car, the theft situation, actually, the day that I recorded last week's episode, I got a call from a very sweet older gentleman. He found my notebook just laying in the middle of the street. Must have been ditched while someone was making their getaway. It had been soaked in snow, probably run over a couple times. The uh, the cover had been ripped in two, but all the ideas, all the pages were intact. But he found my notebook, found my contact information that I included in there, and gave me a call. So the prodigal notebook has returned. In today's episode, I get to know my friend Tim Legacy. We talk Tim's passion for fiction writing and how that translates well into a love for Dungeons & Dragons. Tim likes to serve as dungeon master for a long-term group he's been a part of here, and he also likes joining the other side of the table as a character player. In fact, he and his wife and a couple of his friends have invited Dixie and I to play Dungeons & Dragons with them. So, finally, the Hennings are getting into this game. Tim is currently transitioning out of a job as a mattress salesman here in Billings to go full-time as a freelance copywriter to join his wife at home as she does freelance graphic design. He also has experience as a freelance editor. The guy has a fun life. I really got to say that. He and I talk about his interest in the current events surrounding Hong Kong and the Chinese government. We also talk about Tim's faith, how that has changed and evolved, especially after having his first son within the last year. I hope you enjoy how creative and thoughtful Tim is in this episode. So without further ado, here's the interview. Fire questions. Tim, are you ready? Yes. Don't think too hard. Gut instinct. These are going to be either or questions. I never think too hard. Perfect. <laughs> Board games or video games? Video games. Oceans or lakes? Oceans. Rain or sun? Sun. Early morning or late night? Both. Summer or winter? Both. <laughs> Marvel or DC? Marvel. Ooh, okay. Captain America or Iron Man? I'd go Iron Man. Libraries or museums? Libraries. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Sweet or savory? Savory, every time. Do you call it soda or pop? Soda. Hogwarts or the Shire? Shire. Disney or Pixar? Pixar. Books or movies? Books. Sweater or hoodie? Hoodie. Handshakes or hugs? Handshakes. Introvert or extrovert? Leaning towards introvert. Okay. Phone calls or texts? Phone calls. Excellent. These are less either or. 
Okay. And you don't have to rapid fire them. Okay. But these are just kind of fun questions. Sure. First, a series of favorites. Favorite snack. Snickers. Favorite morning drink. Coffee or orange juice. I'm really torn. Wow. Yeah. All right. Favorite song. Oh, that changes by the week, man. I don't know. What's it this week? Uh, this week it is 555-5555 by Lorne. Favorite city? Hong Kong. Oh, good answer. I have a lot of favorites in the U.S. I know. Um, but, like, <laughs> there's just so many good ones. Okay. But the the city that is consistently the one that my heart gravitates towards is Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah. How many times have you been there? Um push an eight or nine probably that sounds awesome yeah yes we will get back there i promise perfect uh what is your favorite novel either a tale of two cities Ayo. i am so happy right now or les mis oh both super good what is your favorite smell oh that's a good question okay either leather love the smell of leather yes or there is a particular brand of don't laugh beard oil that is my actual favorite. Oh, what is it called? It Let's is, buzz market. <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah, we say the name and then they have to pay you a bunch of money, right? That's, I think that's how this that's works. That's how this works. Um, <laughs> Disney, so, Pixar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the brand is called Beard Brand. Okay. And the particular scent is called Old Money. Um, mm. It's what I currently am using and am absolutely in love with. It smells so good. Fantastic. Who is the smartest person you know? Malcolm Gladwell or my good friend Chris, who lives here in town. What is your secret talent? I don't know about secret. Okay. But maybe unexpected. Mm. I am not atrocious at table tennis. Awesome. It's just leaning into that not, stereotype there. Not atrocious. Let's go with that. What was your first job? Burger King. It was awful. What is the worst fashion trend you've ever participated in? Ooh, I was definitely on the bandwagon for the bowl cut for oh. a solid little uh, while there in junior high. No way. Yeah. Not willingly, but just out of, I think, my parents' lack of motivation to send me to a real barber. So Fair. Yeah, that there's a painful few years of pictures there of me. If you could have one superpower... What would it be? Steven, I have debated this so much. I'm you so, don't even know. I'm so glad. I would say the ability to react super, super quickly would be like, and it's such, it's such a mild air quotes superpower. Okay. But that's the one I keep coming back to. Just reflex, man. It's the one that you can show off most without getting caught for. Okay. And like has the biggest impact on life that or being able to teleport you know, one or the uh, other. Yeah. Okay. So you want to be the guy who like someone throws a knife at you across the room and you just catch it nonchalantly. Exactly. Fantastic. Yes, that's it. That's beat, a great one. I've never thought of that. I wanted to. Yeah. I've never thought of that. <laughs> what is one book you recommend? I'm currently reading the starless sea okay. by Aaron Morgenstern and it is delightful. What is your proudest achievement? I'm not sure if I would call this a personal achievement. Okay. But I would say, something that I am proudest of having achieved is the level of communication prowess maybe is the I don't know if that's a word to mm. use there okay um, I'm very proud of uh, Sarah my wife and I the way that we have grown in our ability to commu communicate and overcome conflict 
in our marriage. I think that is uh, looking back at where that was when we first got married compared to now how and what we argue about is has come a long way. That Every married couple is going to argue, but I think how we argue is super important. That's great. That is vital. Are there any resources that you guys kind of tapped into when you began growing in your communication skills? I think Sacred Marriage was uh, was a book that was pretty formative, formative for us. Okay. Um, that was a good one. A lot of that has come about just kind of naturally through study of personality types, um, Enneagram, that sort of thing. So a lot of a lot of those types of of academic spheres have really influenced how we communicate and how we um, go about conflict. Do you mind me asking what your Enneagram type is? Four, I think. It's so hard. Uh, allegedly. Four is one of those. The Enneagram is one of those, like, I don't believe in the tests. I believe in personal exploration. Yeah. And I think it becomes a lot easier when you view them from the standpoint of what your motivation is behind your actions yep. rather than what your actions actually are. Yeah, because otherwise the test is, you get into this weird circular feedback loop where you're telling the test what you're like for the test to tell you what you're like. Yep. <laughs> it, it becomes a Facebook quiz of what type do I want to be now? Yeah. Yeah. What office character am I? <laughs> Have you given any thought to what the title of your memoir could be? I kind of tried to think about this question beforehand and came up with no satisfying answers. I Maybe th- that's it. No I've, satisfying answers. No satisfying answers. That... Or B, to whom it may concern, because I think that's just cheeky and fun. Yes. Yeah. That's great. What did you have for breakfast? A granola bar. What would you eat for your last meal? Probably just a lot of lobster and shrimp. Really? Seafood? I do not get enough seafood in my life. I love a good ribeye steak. A good salmon filet is also delightful. Mm. But I will eat shrimp and lobster just I will I will eat myself to death. You'll and never be stop. So happy about it. <laughs> what is your favorite TV show? I have really enjoyed uh recently The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. Fantastic show. Yes. Probably all-time favorite show would be Breaking Bad. Mm. And lastly, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a uh I'm not sure how best to phrase this. My answer had you asked me when I was 5 would be an inventor, but in my mind, that looked a lot more like what we would label a mad scientist. <laughs> so that was that was my dream. Maybe still is borderline, mm. but low-key. Okay, so you have smoking vials all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Beakers full fl- of fluorescent liquids. Lightning and, flashes yep. on the wall. And somehow you come out with something made of metal at the end of it. That's mm. that was that was what I that was my goal. An alchemist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Isaac Newton. <laughs> but not limited strictly to alchemy, which is why the more okay. general, more accurate term, mad scientist. Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> All right. Tim Legacy. That's how you say it, right? Yes. I've heard Legacy before. I've heard Legacy, 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 Legace. Um, <laughs> did I mention Legace a uh-huh. lot? Yeah. All over the place. Fantastic. Just, legacy. Just like the word. So Tim Legacy. Would you give us kind of an overview of your story? Introduce yourself. Sure. So I was born in Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I lived most of my life there growing up. I went to the University of Texas at Arlington. After my last semester there, 
I needed just one more semester, a couple more credits to graduate. And I had kind of orchestrated things so that I could go to the Focus on Focus on the Family Leadership Institute in Colorado Springs for my final semester and accomplish all the credits that I needed left to graduate. I was never really in much of a hurry through college. You're welcome, Mom and Dad. <laughs> so I uh, moved up to Colorado Springs where I was in the same class as Sarah and uh, Sarah then Nitschke, now Legacy. Mm-hmm. And from there, I had always wanted to live really i kind of went to the focus on the family institute so that i could move to colorado that was really just my in to get kind of a a ride up there and and see what life was like in colorado yeah there are two kinds of texans there's the texan who is all about like the lifestyle and has the tattoo on the shoulder and of the lone star state all of the just hardcore has bought in and then there is the Texan who wants to move to Colorado. <laughs> I was I was the latter. Yes. Okay. So uh, after having succeeded in my life goal of moving to Colorado, we uh, I went to went to the Focus on the Family Institute, and after that found uh, found work in Colorado. Stayed there. I kind of floated job to job, just finding whatever I could get my hands on. Met some fantastic people. Enjoyed my time there quite a bit. I lived in Colorado for a total of about two, two and a half years before moving up here to Billings five years ago. Uh, Backtracking a little bit, I'm curious to know what you studied in college. Sure. In college, I studied English with, I guess, kind of an English literature focus and a minor in creative writing. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. So that has kind of impacted a lot of of what uh, what I do now, what I am interested in doing. Or maybe vice versa. What I'm interested in doing impacted that without a lot of forethought towards what I might actually do with that to make any money. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fun story about how I landed in English. I started out as a film major. Uh, Little known known fact about me. I I I was so excited about being a film major because I wanted to go into animation. Then I discovered that animation is a lot of computer modeling and like 3D rendering and things that I had zero time or patience for or understanding of. So, yeah, um, I pivoted pretty quickly into a more screenwriting focus, discovered I was terrible at screenwriting because the consistent feedback I got was, you are telling your actors what to do way too much. You have one particular art and they have theirs. Don't, you know back off a little bit but you gotta leave room for them to breathe exactly they have to be able to interpret and i was crushed because i can't have some tom fool actor jacking up my amazing scripts so i decided to be a creative writing person instead because then i have complete autonomy over my art so i majored in control freak is (laughs) what that kind of boils down to that's one way to put it (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Okay. I wanted to ask what you currently do for work. Yeah. So for the last uh, about a year and a half, I've worked at Mattress King and I'm currently wrapping up my, uh, my employment there okay. at the end of, at the end of this month, I will be moving to full-time working from home uh, as a freelancer, copywriter and copy editor. Okay. 
So that's something that I've been doing on the side of whatever job I've had <laughs> since college and has always been kind of just a familiar space for me to swim in. Yeah. This is the first time I've tried to set myself up to do just that as my full-time source of income. Mm-hmm. So scary. Oh yeah. That's what that is right now. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be doing that full time, um, which does afford me the opportunity to work from home, be a more equal part of raising August, our son mm-hmm. and enjoying fatherhood like that. And that's super special. Yeah. And I hope build uh, build a real career where before this has kind of just been a side gig. Okay. So this is the, this is the moment where things begin to pivot from side hustle to full hustle. Exactly. This exactly. is this is the life you've been working to create for a while. This is honestly, I've not really tried to make copywriting and editing a full-time gig before. Okay. My real passion is is fiction and yes. and writing in in that in that sense. Copywriting, copy editing has been a nice side source of income, but not something that I've ever pursued as a primary source of income because I've kind of gone about career choices as a way to just kind of make it by until I could figure out how to make a a sustainable income on fiction writing. But I've discovered that's a long, longer journey than I'm willing to put up with and be poor that long. Oh oh no. Okay. We're transitioning to doing copywriting, copy editing full time, and then fiction writing becomes the side hustle. To eventually become the full time. Ideally. Again. Yeah. Just setting up a new, you know, sidecar on the motorcycle. Exactly. But also I I love fiction to the extent that if it was always just something I did on the side, that would be fine. It will always bring me a profound amount of joy and be the thing that I do to feel closest to God and Mm. most at peace with myself. Okay. And that gets us into D&D. I was hoping it would. What a joy. (laughs) As a control freak, if I can put that lovingly. Sure. Yeah. What is it like to be a dungeon master? Ooh. So you and I, you and I started talking about this at a coffee shop. I want to say like maybe two weeks ago. It was a great conversation. Yeah. And we got into D and D and Dixie and I have been dabbling. Um, she wrote, excellent. she wrote her own RPG, like one page named Dino Days. That's so awesome. It's fantastic. And we can talk about my wife's creative genius forever if you wanted to i can't wait but we got into D &D and i learned that you dungeon master regularly for a group here in billings correct i can't imagine being someone who likes to have a tight grip on exactly where the narrative is headed exactly what the structure of the story is going to be but allowing a group of people to more or less steer you and you have to be a reactive person oh wait maybe that's where your preferred superpower comes in maybe or (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not going to take hazard too many guesses around that or I'm going to get myself into some hot water. But I think if we're going to touch back on the Enneagram conversation, it's more about the motive. Okay. So I think the motive for me behind wanting to craft a story, a piece of fiction to its utmost potential has a lot to do with my love for aesthetics and my value of beauty in that regard. And D&D is a very different form of art. And so the beauty in D&D for me is very much more along the lines of what is going to be the unexpected things that happen in this session. Mm. And what from this uh, framework of 
happenstance and um, yeah, the the goings on of the world of this imaginary place, what are the players going to do with that? And what themes are they going to choose to tell the story about through their characters in this world that you as the as the the DM has set up? So in that sense, I think that D&D is equally as beautiful a storytelling vehicle as the written word. It's just a very different type of art. So as a person who studied English, mm -hmm. uh, you've dabbled in various forms of writing, mm -hmm. various forms of editing. Yep. What is your relationship like with, let's call it impermanence? Ooh, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if I can tie these two together. So in your relationship with writing your own work, maybe even writing copy for a business mm -hmm. for ads that are going to be read. Yeah. The editing process takes quite a lot. And something that writers are always told from the beginning is that you need to spend more time editing your own work than actually writing. Sure. A lot of that is going to involve the backspace button. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're at least comfortable there. You you get to edit other people's work and tell them what to delete. Yep. You know, sometimes they end up being married to that paragraph. Sure. But you can see from an objective third person point of view that that doesn't need to be in there there's a very popular phrase i hope i'm not cutting you off there no it's there's okay. a very popular uh piece of advice in the especially the fiction writing world yeah that uh, that goes kill your darlings it really that boils down to sometimes as a writer you become so enamored with the idea of a character or the idea of a particular plot device you're going to use or a particular scene where there's all this payoff and this awesome thing happens and this is the scene that you've been working towards for what you imagine to be the whole length of having written this book and it's just not that good and not only is it not that good but it doesn't belong here there's no way to edit this into a properly satisfying climax for the story and so the the advice of kill your darlings is really there to say be willing to let go of your favorite pieces of your story so that it become, can become a better version of that story. Yeah. And so the same thing holds true in every area of creativity, I think, but especially writing. Mm -hmm. um, when you have to write a thousand words to get 300 of them that are good. Yep, exactly. So there's a relationship that writers have and that people who naturally edit, whether it's your own work or someone else's work, you're, you're comfortable with the idea of killing your darlings, of editing out, creating 300 words out of a thousand. Yeah. But there is a, a relationship you have with those words in a way that, you know, once you have it edited down to the exact thing you're trying to say, that it kind of makes things permanent, um, whether you're publishing on a blog or, you know, put it on a book and be able to leaf through your own work. Sure. There's something that feels final about that. Do you ever feel a sense of loss knowing that, you and your Dungeon and Dragons group have told a story that is recorded nowhere. In a sense. Yeah. yeah. I think um, that's where I was headed when I asked about sure. impermanence. Yeah. This relationship you have with D&D storytelling with a group of people, whereas a, a writer typically is trying to write their own story. Sure. Or they, they have an idea of where things go. And now you have players in D&D &D that just get to take things anywhere they want to. Yeah. And it becomes this like, this precious thing that you as a group have created put into the middle of the table and said like, this is our art. This was something we did over the last four hours. Absolutely. But it's not anywhere for you to have a record of. And 
that is, um, you know, with the, with the advent of, of shows like critical role and some of these, these really big ones that yeah. have, uh, that have popularized D and D, um, to a crazy extent in, yes. in the very recent few years there, there are groups that do have that recorded firmly, but in seeing that, I think a real beautiful part of your classic D and D at your friend's house in the basement with all the stuff set up and your minis and the, all the books laid out everywhere and constantly, constantly consulting the rules for different things. I think a real beautiful aspect of that that shouldn't go overlooked is that when you go back to tell the stories back to each other, the next session or two years later, the stories get bigger and bigger, just like the biggest fish you ever caught, you know, it's the same exact thing in this. And as time goes on, the stories take on an etherealness of their own because you can't go back and look at how exactly it was. And they, the memories would probably fall so flat if you could, but they're so much fun mm. because you can't. Okay. So if it was recorded on a microphone, it would almost rob you of that sense of collective art making and collective storytelling. Unless you're Matthew Mercer and a well, crew of actual professional voice. creative voice actors who can be that good live all the time. Yeah. That's fair. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you that. <laughs> Have you ever considered actually creating your own podcast with your group, Ben? You know, we have actually considered, as I'm sure many groups have, streaming our, oh, yes, our, Twitch. our games. Yeah. So that that may happen at some point okay. soon here. Most likely that will happen after I have finished DMing the current game. Okay. And one of the other players is going to be stepping up to take on the next campaign, yes. which will be super exciting because I can be a player again. Yeah. Uh, th- how long DMing is it? Is so much fun. But how long has it been since you've been a, just a character? Just a player. It's been a little over a year. Yeah. About uh, about 13 months. Okay. Yeah. So that'll be fun to get back into. It will be so much fun. Absolutely. So we're, we're kind of excited about the, just the question being put on the table of would we be interested in streaming? And of course the age old, the age old saying is that the only people interested in your game are the people around the table. Yeah, that's true. And even if that is the case, it's just, it is fun to uh, use that as a tool to hone your own storytelling as DM and hone your own character development as a player mm-hmm. um and and work on pacing and work on structure and yeah. work on interaction with the other players to a degree that is just not on your radar when you're just sitting around right. shooting the breeze yeah because at that point you're actually performing exactly when did you start playing D? i think i got roped into D three ish years ago now i don't okay. remember exactly when it was I got pulled into D&D by a friend of mine. I think he had a group that was, they were playing for several months at yeah. least. And he had invited me several times when I was out working on my own writing project of some sort. Okay. Um, this was back at Off the Leaf, like way back in the day. And they would play their sessions in the conference room in the back there. I rem- just re- reserve it. Yeah. Exactly. I remember that. Right? I remember seeing the conference room door closed and just a party like 6 p.m through 1 a.m laid out on the table yep and uh and so he he invited me probably probably five separate times before i was finally like okay i'll sit in the back and i'll i'll check it out i'll see what it's all about Mm. i had all the same stigmas that 
everybody does about D&D and like, okay, fine. I super bad <laughs> case of writer's block. I'm not getting anything done here. Yeah. Sure. I'll come check it out. I sat in the back for probably all of about 15 minutes before I was like, okay, how do I make a character? <laughs> Let's do <laughs> this. The rest, as they say, was history. Yeah. What would you advise a new player like myself on how to get into a group? Well, I don't want to say get into a group like someone invite me, please. <laughs> but what's it like getting over that initial, oh my goodness, I have to make a character. Do we use character voices in this group? Do we like act out some dialogue? Uh, because like I've, I've I've played once or twice and I've always described D&D as if, you know, like remember when you were seven or eight and you're out in the backyard and you're holding sticks that you just pulled off a tree. Oh, absolutely. And they're your swords or your guns. Yep. And you and your friend are just imagining this entire new world, still your backyard, but you might as well be seeing it an entire new planet. Yep. That's basically what D&D is is except you sit on a table at a table and sometimes on i mean well it's that kind of night (laughs) so i mean that's basically what it is you sit at a table and the only restriction really is that there's a convention in which you roll dice to help you determine the success or failure yeah of what you want to do it's it's imagination with a few more rules around it to make it less chaotic yeah so what would you tell uh, someone brand new to it who is curious to see it. Maybe they were introduced to it by episode one of Stranger Things. Okay. Uh, and they're curious to play it, but they have an intense feeling of stage fright or embarrassed by the idea of inhabiting a new personality and a new voice. Sure. That's a great question. I would definitely say that don't be afraid to ask if you already have somebody that you know that is running a group that you're going to be jumping into, you know, this is a, maybe this is a similar situation to where I was, where you're getting invited to a group like this. Yeah. Just ask all the questions that you want to, to the DM or to any one of the players beforehand. The beautiful thing about D and D in its most recent cultural iteration is that it's so open and so welcoming and everybody's here to have fun. Everybody's here to make fools out of themselves. Yes. And so if that's your fear of looking silly, that's everybody else's goal is to look silly. (laughs) So there's really nothing to be worried about. Okay. Yeah. There's every group is different as far as the particular flavor of, of D and D that they're playing, whether they're more rules focused or what more narrative focused and role playing focused, just kind of knowing what group you're jumping into and not being afraid to ask all the questions. Any advice for someone who's considering filling the dungeon master role i would say that it's very similar advice okay in that one knowing the people in your group and being able to in general hang out with them and have a good time is super important okay um if they're not people you kind of like spending time around you're going to spend a lot of time around them and if they're unpleasant people for you then probably don't have that person in your group yeah um that's fair but after that i would say It's very similar advice to the player's advice in that as DM, it's kind of your responsibility to ask your players what type of fun they want to have. Okay. If you know that you're going to have players who really want to just beat the game every time, maybe kind of setting some different expectations for them and laying out that this is not a competitive sport. This is collective storytelling. If that's not super appealing then there may be a different group that may be better. Honestly, D&D is not set up to be a competitive thing. Yeah. Um, yep. And so 
uh, you can run into problems if that's what your players want. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so asking the players what their goals are for the game, what kind of story they're interested in. Are they interested in political intrigue? And um, I'm currently DMing Waterdeep Dragon Heist, and it's very RP heavy, very you know interaction based. Yep. Um, and it's completely set within one location, one city in the game. Oh, okay. So, so it's, it's less of an adventure story where you're traveling across an, a vast map. It is the Italian job rather than the Fellowship of the Ring. That's so good. Should someone play as a character for X amount of time before they try being a dungeon master? If you want to. Okay. I'd say that can work out really well either way. Um, A good friend of mine, one of the players in our group, he played a little bit when he was, I don't know, in junior high or something. And then more recently he jumped into straight into DMing like right mm. out of the gate. Cause he was just super fired up about it without having been a player at all since junior high. So you can attack it from either way. I was a player for a solid year, year and a half before I dipped my toe into the, the, the waters of DMing. That's good. I think I'm seeing a bit of a through line, at least in your relationship to being someone who likes to keep control of things. Not necessarily, you know, one of my earlier questions was how does your relationship with DMing interact with your desire to keep control? Sure. But now I'm seeing that, you know, as DM, you actually get to be a little bit of the the arbiter of the rulebook. There, there is a strong aspect of that. A bit of an enforcer. A little bit of enforcer. At the end of the day, you make the final call mm-hmm. on a lot of the areas of the rules or rather the practice of the rules that there's not anything written for you in the rules as written, especially depending on the group. My group has an enormous amount of fun doing things that there are no mechanics for. And so that leaves me to oftentimes scramble and make up rules of the top of my head. Um, You're improvising. The, exactly. It's, there's, <laughs> there's no way to decide how this goes. There's, there's no rule written for nope. really struggling to come up with an exact example, but there are so many things that there are mechanics in place to guide you and kind of say, it might be this type of check, but how exactly that plays out in practice and what the action economy is around that, God only knows. You just kind of make something up as you go. That's fair. That's good. So to get us back a little bit, because I I missed an opportunity to ask a question I was really curious to ask. Shoot. Being a person who's crafting a life where you get to work from home. Yeah. Are there any particular habits or routines that that you've already built into your life or that you're trying to build into your life to balance the, the work and life happening in the same building? Do you have a workspace that you particularly set aside for work? Um, do you have any kind of things that trigger your mind into, you know, this is work time and this is home time? That's a great question. Right now, the best way for me to be productive the fastest is by just changing my environment. Okay. And so I will usually try to leave the house early in the morning, as mm. early as I can force myself out of bed. I'm not necessarily a morning person, but man, getting up out of bed early and getting out of the house to a coffee shop to kickstart the day with some tasty beverage 
and a little bit of people interaction and then sit down and just plug away at work mm-hmm. is excellent. Uh, I get so much done in the morning. Okay. I get almost nothing done in the afternoon. So I got to figure out some systems in place to <laughs> be better at that. But uh, so far, that's been the most surefire way to get things done is to change my environment a little bit. Okay. So uh, that that's good to note, at least for yourself, if you're considering working a career this way, know when you can get your brain into the flow state, yeah. whether that be morning or afternoon. Thank you for bringing up flow state. That's more or less what part of what I have kind of used as inspiration to figure out how to get work done better. Oh, great. Uh, so a novelty, you know, is that yeah. changing the environment mm-hmm. um, and uh, that little bit of dopamine rush really helps out a lot. Yep. So maybe saying working from home, I think that can sometimes be interpreted as a misnomer. Like, yeah, uh, oh, for someone sure. working, quote unquote, working from home is in the same house they never go outside right but they've gotten nine hours worth of work done this really means that you just get a roving office and you get to do your work you don't have a dedicated workspace you know you don't have a counter to go to and serve customers right yeah so oftentimes that's heading out of the house to do some work and then coming back and if i am able to do work from home right now sarah and i trade off and so watching august and so I'll head out for the morning, I'll work, and then I'll come home. And then in the afternoon, my primary responsibility is to watch after him. If I can get him down for a nap, that means more work time or a nap time for me also. Yes. You know, depending on how the night went. But because new parents need to sleep just ex- as much as the baby. Exactly. <laughs> so we kind of swap off like that. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll see how that pans out after this is full time and sure. I'm just at home every day. Yeah. And we'll have to figure out kind of a real rhythm for that. But right now, for my days off, that's what works best. So as a practicality, I'm curious, when you're at a coffee shop, do you need to plug into any kind of music? Uh, do you leave any everything off your ears? Great question. I actually find music super distracting. Oh, I cannot okay. get any work done. Even instrumental. On, even instrumental because it's new and I find myself paying attention to it, trying to track the progression of the music. Again, maybe it's just because I'm so story oriented, mm. but when there's when there's a song that has any sort of movement in tone from beginning to end immediately 100% distracted and I can't focus on what I'm I'm doing. Okay. So if I have headphones on, it's more or less to block out the noise of the outside rather than to be listening to anything. Okay. So you are using the presence of headphones on your ears more as a cue to the outside world saying I'm plugged in. Don't bother me. It does have that added bonus. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, because I know the last time I caught you at a coffee shop, you were in the middle of work. You yeah. didn't have headphones on. Nope. It felt like it, I could approach you. Oh, it was great. And Loved it wasn't, it. at least you made me feel like I wasn't in, interrupting a, a flow state. You were in the zone. Not at all. Kind of moment. Okay. Yep. Do you use any particular tools to keep you focused while you're on the computer? I'm assuming all your writing is happening on a yep. a Mac or you know a laptop. Yep. Do you use any productivity tools that help you stay away from scrolling Facebook on your computer or blocking notifications anything like that yeah i find last minute panic extremely effective so <laughs> okay yeah when i've got a deadline looming and i'm a procrastinator so it usually takes until that deadline um, yeah that that really kind of goes a long way towards just getting me productive i will more of a meta tool then exactly yeah yeah okay. yeah, yeah uh necessity but uh no besides that not i don't really have any systems in place okay I think that will that will need to be something that I do put in place. But I would love to say that I I aspire to be just a disciplined enough person that to say no to distractions. Yes. But that's 
rarely realistic. Well, yeah, and and adopting the the writer's mantra of butt in chair. Yes. Because <laughs> you can't leave that alone. Yep. You can't ignore that. Yep. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Tim Legacy. If you'd like to tell us about it, the best way to do that would be on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and give us a review. For Android users, you can head on over to facebook.com slash knowpeoplepod and leave us a recommendation and a review on our Facebook page. You can connect with us on other social medias like Instagram and Twitter at knowpeoplepod. That's K-N-O-W, peoplepod. And be sure to use the hashtags there, hashtag knownormalpeople and hashtag KNP. If you work for, operate, or own a business that would like to advertise in this section of the podcast, please contact me at knowpeoplepod at gmail.com. Thanks for letting me jump in. Here's the rest of the interview with Tim Legacy. I am curious... Okay, so you and I are friends on Facebook, mm-hmm. and you mentioned to me pre-recording here that you're not necessarily a social media user. I use it a lot. I don't use it well a okay. lot. As in, you I don't just, post a lot. It's I a lot of scroll and waste a lot of time and don't do anything super constructive with it. Okay, yeah, it's a lot of checking in. But what I have seen on Facebook and our friendship on Facebook, I've seen a lot of posts and a lot of updates mm-hmm. on what is currently unfolding. In Hong Kong, yeah, um, with the Chinese government, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear a little background, um, a little background of your relationship to Hong Kong, and how your family traces its roots back into the area, and your investment in the the current events unfolding there. Sure. So, a little bit of background on me: my uh, half of my ancestry on my mother's side traces back to China, Hong Kong specifically. Wow. Um, so my mother is uh, Chinese and she's first generation now uh, American. And okay. so she, she moved over when she was in college, but that definitely um, carried a cultural impact for myself growing up in that from, man, I think my first trip to Hong Kong was when I was a year old or so. And since that point, it has been fairly regular i'm almost like clockwork every four years my family would take a trip over to hong kong and we'd spend about a month over there Mm. so i grew up with just a lot of memories of hong kong and so many of the streets to kind of tie it back to your question about the current events over there all of these news stories that are that are coming out from the events that are happening over there right now with the government and protests i i read through those and i see a street that I have walked down mm. um, and I see a new a subway station that I have been there. And now it's this chaotic scene of people bashing things in with baseball bats and wow. poles and throwing Molotov cocktails at, you know, barricades and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little, it's a little surreal. Is it unnerving at all? I don't know about unnerving. It's definitely concerning. Yeah. Um, to get back to your question, uh, a little background on what's going on overseas right now is that um, Hong Kong was under British rule for 100 years and um, just very recently went back to to China's control under the stipulation that China would afford Hong Kong a quote-unquote 
high level of autonomy in their government. Very vague, very vague wording. <laughs> yeah, um, and, legalese is not a good language to play with. And I'm sure there were, I'm sure there's more around it than that. But understandably, China doesn't really like to roll that way, and so they've been very much pushing on those against those those stipulations to try to assert more control over Hong Kong and put their own uh, their own ideal candidates into positions where people are kind of forced to vote for them mm-hmm. and candidates that China knows will back the Chinese agenda rather than the democratic agenda and slowly assert that control more and more closely around Hong Kong and its citizens. So the real kind of tipping point lately came when there was a there was a bill passed recently that kind of sparked everything that in effect would allow criminals to be deported to China uh to face uh you know legal prosecution yeah um, and and that is hong kong citizens now effectively being able to be extradited to china for trial correct correct and the scary part about that is that once China is able to accuse anyone in Hong Kong of committing a crime, regardless of whether or not they actually committed that, China doesn't have to prove that they committed it before extraditing them. Right. And so, okay, you're coming to China now to face charges where they can basically just throw them in jail for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. awaiting trial. Yeah. You know? um, so it's kind of the, it was kind of a black bag type of situation that was China was trying to, to get past. Right. And, that was really the tipping point for a lot of these protests. Yep. So um, the protests erupted around this bill, Hong Kong citizens essentially saying, we don't want China involved here. Right. We've, we've been under quote unquote British rule with high degree of autonomy. Yep. And now that that timer is nearing its end, China's trying to get its, uh, get its fingers into Hong Kong's jurisdiction. Right. Yeah. And independence. Well, yeah. So in, in technical terms, the the timer is up. Yeah. But there's there's an additional fifty years where China is uh where Hong Kong has to maintain this high degree of autonomy. Mm. And that is currently what China's um uh pressing into. Trying to fight against. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So they so, so really my I would say my my kind of involvement with what's going on over there is on more of an idealistic level that there is there's a people group fighting for freedom, which especially here in the U.S. we can get behind. That's mm-hmm. that's one of our core values, um, regardless of where you fall politically. A very common core shared value for all of us is freedom. On the right or on the left, it really is just people looking for the freedom to do what they think is is right and good, and that plays out in obviously if you look at our political landscape right now, two very different opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's driven by the same core, uh, value in that sense. And in Hong Kong right now, that is what's being fought for is the ability to elect officials that they, uh, that are going to represent them and the ability to do business and do life with some level of, of freedom without the government breathing down their necks. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've seen, uh, I heard a few news stories about even Hong Kongers, uh, which by the way, fun fact, they refer to themselves as Hong Kongers, not Chinese. So, oh yeah, it's, it's very deep. Yeah. Um, Hong Kongers have been protesting with American flags, waving American flags yep. during the protests because 
for them that is a symbol of freedom and democracy. And I think that's pretty inspiring. That is inspiring. So, Tim, thank you for kind of going into the backstory of Hong Kong there and yeah. into your involvement and your, your values there. And my very shaky understanding of it, but yeah, well, there it is. Current events tend to be squishy and a little hard to grasp. Yeah. Multifaceted. There's so many moving pieces and so yeah. many motivations on multiple sides. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about your relationship let me ask it this way. How does your spirituality or faith or belief system now compare to your childhoods? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like many people that grew up in a Christian home, there is either a point at which you um, have to figure some things out and reconcile your experiences with your beliefs. Sure. Or there's, of course, just the option of keeping your head down and just kind of plugging ahead and uh there's there can be a lot of security and comfort in that i was one of the former in that there was a there was a point for me in high school where things started to kind of not line up as far as what i had okay i've been taught all of these things but is that really true um mm-hmm. and as a classic avoider of difficult th- things and ideas I just ignored it and uh, decided to keep on ignoring it until uh, probably midway through college when it just became unbearable to not be able to reconcile those those two very what felt like very conflicting things in my mind. Okay. And uh, so I would say that I grew up with a very uh, a very traditional view of Christianity and myself and how I fit into that whole system and as I moved into college, I started to really question what that looked like and the nature of God and the nature of people and uh, how that all fits together with what the Bible says versus what science says. And those two different things seemed like very different things. So, okay. That might have been the tipping point for you the relationship of the Bible and science. Maybe oh, were you looking particularly at evolution? I'd say that was the big one. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it typically is it when science is involved. Yep, exactly. Because you get into questions of how old is the earth really? Um, did we really have common ancestors? All these. And if the, all that is the case, then is there really a God? Because is there any need for a God in that whole system? Oh. And I think that's kind of a, a big portion of what the, the question boiled down to. Okay. Is if all of this can exist without a God, why is there one? So that's kind of, that that was kind of the big question in my mind Mm -hmm. um, and the one that I wrestled through. So I finally, finally mustered up the courage to dive into that in college and over about a two-year process, probably. I read every book on apologetics I could get my hands on or what felt that way. Obviously, I've only scratched the surface of it, um, but I, I read voraciously. I went to uh, you know conferences and listened to pastors speak on all manner of different things. Um, I read a lot of works from atheists, and I, I really tried to get a balanced argument from both sides, and that was a really painful process for me Yeah, um, because... I, as much as I was, honestly, by the time I got to that point, I was trying to make my peace with being an atheist while at the same time, not wanting to read or think about anything that disproved 
my old faith too much because that felt like it was an affront to part of my identity. And it mm. was because that, yeah. that was a big part of what I built my identity on. Right. So even though I identified or not publicly identified, but even though I regarded myself as leaning heavily towards the atheistic standpoint, I still didn't want to believe that oh, stuff. So, okay. Or read anything to the contrary of the Bible or anything. So it was scary territory. It was. Yeah. Okay. It, was, it was really new territory. And I didn't open up to anyone about it. So that just kind of compounded things because I had no sounding board. Yeah. That makes the process very difficult. Very, very difficult. But in it, over about a two year course period of time, I, like I said, I read so much. I watched so many videos. And uh, there was a conference that I went to that uh, that was kind of talking about uh it was a christian conference and it in the first like four hours of the conference they had a probably four or five different speakers who each got up and spoke about a different piece of apologetics and that was that was a great nutshelling of everything that i had been putting together on my own over the last two years and even though they only each one only scratched the surface on each of the topics that they talked about it was the first time that I was able to piece together in my own mind all the different disparate pieces of the arguments for and against and hold them all in my mind at one time and be able to finally evaluate all of them. So mm. that was a big that was a big moment. And that kind of tipped the scales for me in a way that hasn't ever untipped, I guess. Mm, okay. <laughs> so that uh that was the first time in my mind that I could put together all of the things you know i imagine the the screen with all the numbers right and the graphs and the charts and you're calculating everything in your mind um and yes. and everything kind of made sense for the first time okay. often when you're doing something it's research on some big area of study of any sort you can get super granular about a lot of different things but until you can figure out at once how they all piece together um, and kind of look at them all from a thirty thousand foot view it, none of it makes sense. Okay. And finally, it all made sense. Yeah. So um, coming out of your childhood, you entered this period of feeling like everything need to be, needed to be questioned. Everything needed to be pulled apart, examined, put back together if you want it to be put back together. Oh, yeah. I, I think you, I, I was completely unprepared to deal with myself as a person unless yeah. I could figure out this piece of the puzzle. Okay. And then you eventually put the puzzle back together. In a way that satisfies you and that makes you, that inspires you to continue living a life according to the Christian faith. Is that right? I put together enough puzzle pieces okay. to where I felt like I had a solid grounding. Oh. There are always more questions yes. and I still have things that don't seem to line up and there's, there's no end of questions because it's complicated. Of course. Um, I don't think I'll ever have the answers to all of them. If anyone says they do, they're probably lying yeah. or arrogant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, enough that I felt grounded in it. May I ask, because you recently just became a father yourself. Yeah. How has having a child of your own impacted your spiritual growth or your spiritual path? Ooh, I think that having, having my own kid has been a lesson in the very, very simple lessons that you grew up with in Sunday school. Oh. Like, you're a child of God. That's a, that's a loaded statement, you know? And so as, as a father... Things like my son just vomited on me and I've never thought he looked cuter. 
Like that's a strange thing. That's a very unique thing to parenthood. Yeah. And so uh, that has, that has started to unravel into larger questions about um, my relationship with, with God in that before becoming a parent, it's often, it was so driven by what can I do for God? Or if I do these things, then um, I will be in his will and all sorts of other, other fun, fun statements, fun ideas like that. Um, and as I've watched my son figure out the world around him and be terrible at it, it has been, it has brought a profound sense of relief that God chooses that particular analogy to describe his relationship with us. Oh, that that's we can beautiful. Literally do nothing right. And he yeah. is just overwhelmed with love for us. We could vomit all over his shirt and he thinks we are just the cutest. Just on a daily <laughs> basis. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. What was the moment like when you got to hold your son for the first time? Is Are there words to put to it? Yes. So I was the first one to actually hold my son in my hands. Okay. I was in the delivery room and I, I got to catch him. Wow. Um, so the short answer to your question is bloody. Oh, no. And very noisy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but But profound in the sense of holding a new life like that is uh is something that's very difficult to put words to i would imagine yeah i I still don't have great a great way to to describe that Mm -hmm. there was a lot of being overwhelmed there was a lot of concern for sarah there was Mm -hmm. a lot of dear lord don't drop the baby you know (laughs) um so yeah but at the same time, it's one of those things where the further you get away from the moment, the story just gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. Absolutely. Oh, that's Absolutely. wonderful. So it was really cool. I, I think I was I was just kind of floored at being entrusted with a life like that mm. and the fragility of life. Like, man, when a baby comes out, they are in no short sort of shape to be able to do anything. Yep. They literally can't breathe on their own until mm-hmm. they get a little bit of help, even in that. Gee. So, yeah, I, I think that just the how fragile that is yep. was definitely striking for those first few moments. That's beautiful. What are you currently reading? I am reading The Starless Sea. I think I mentioned that just a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been a delightful read. Okay. It is, roughly speaking, it is a story about stories. It's very meta. It's kind of a conglomeration of a lot of different, really beautiful, beautifully written, short little pieces that don't seem to have anything to do with each other. Okay. That are just kind of dropped in like like sprinkles on top of a more overarching narrative that has its own protagonist, um, antagonistic forces and everything that are going on there. Honest, if I'm if I'm super honest about it. I have enjoyed the sprinkles way more than the ice cream. <laughs> uh, the, the the little pieces of of whimsical fiction that are scattered throughout the book, I have found so much delight in. Each one is its own little microcosm of whimsy and uh, and gravitas and intriguing character. Every time I read one of those, I almost. I go into the next chapter that has something to do with the main character. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, dang it. I don't know if you want to say that about a book. Right. But that's kind of what it is. Yeah. And I'm enjoying the crap out of it. It's yeah. so good. It's a roller coaster. It's so good. <laughs> that's great. Okay. 
what are you currently listening to? This might be music, podcasts. Probably two shows, uh, two podcasts are okay. what I've been absorbing most. One is Planet Money, uh, which is just a fantastic NPR podcast. So, so good. I have learned more about things that I will have zero use for in my life than ever before, and I'm completely ecstatic about it. Right. And uh, secondly, I, l- I listen to quite a bit of The Ground Up Show by Matt Diavella, mm-hmm. and that's just an outstanding podcast. Unfortunately, I think he's he is stopped doing the podcast in like june or july so i'm just going back through all of his backlogged content right now and when that runs out i don't know what i'm gonna do well i think he intentionally pivoted out of podcasting into more youtube videos sure so if you're after more matt diavella work i'm sure it's on his youtube channel well i've i absorbed most of his content that i could find on youtube and then have worked my way through the podcast so I should probably just become a patron Patreon supporter of him at some point because that's I know where he releases uh, a bulk of his content that that doesn't pop up on YouTube or yeah. podcast. So that'll probably be what I do next. I have a lot I of podcasts yeah. that I need to work or that I'm trying to work through. Okay, and I listen to them and they're just not as well curated or as well edited as Planet Money. And I just completely lose interest. High quality is a is a bar for you. Again, I think it goes back to that aesthetics value. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I I read. I start so many books. I finish so few books. Okay. Because I get a little ways into it and just become so dis- disillusioned so quickly with the writing or with the oh wow that was a really cliche intro. I'll stick it out for as long as I can, but after four chapters, if they haven't hooked me, I'm out. Okay. Do you consider that a gift or a curse? I would enjoy life a lot more if that wasn't the case, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but for better or worse, I I have a very high bar, I guess. Yeah. Yep. You're bringing that editor's mind. I, I think so. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And I don't think it's a great thing, but it is what it is. Tim, this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming over. Likewise. Thank you. Would you read our favorite quote for this podcast. Give it a whirl. I would be so happy to. The only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Mm